Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, Michigan Democrats are taking away the Republicans' top issue, tax cuts, right out of the chute in this legislative session. What can the Republicans do about it? A new book retells stories about the Chatfield family and its Northern Michigan Christian Academy. State Superintendent Mike Rice suggests schools look to churches, retirees, and colleges for tutors to help school-age students catch up post-COVID. And a special interview with a Ukrainian student and a Michigan charter school that's helping educate refugees. Now, here's MERS News Editor Kyle Malin, publisher John Rurink, Samantha Schreiber, and Andrew Miniger. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. It's been a busy legislative session already. We've got a bill that the governor is set to sign this week. That will be the earliest that a piece of legislation has been signed in a legislative session since 1947. And this supplemental bill that will get the governor's signature is not the only thing that they're working on. We have a pair of tax cut bills that are number one and two on the Democratic majority's to-do list. Samantha Schreiber, what are they working on right now that is getting Senate and House action? So as a Senate reporter, I covered the passage of the EITC expansion bill and also the retirement proposal that obviously brings the public pension back to that unlimited tax-free retirement income, but also tries to find some other outlets for retirement income relief, uh, such as allowing a employer match to a 401k to be tax-free, and then also providing the opportunity that in case you don't qualify for this new array of exemptions, you would then be able to have access for a single filer more than 48000 in an unrestricted retirement income deduction. So basically, if you're a retiree, you're going to be able to write off a lot of income on your income tax. And you have a choice of two things here. If you're a pensioner, you'll go with one way, the old way, pre-Rick Snyder. But if you're working at Walmart or Home Depot and you're making some money on the side, you'll go the Rick Snyder way and get to write that income off. So either way, you win. Yeah, but this proposal is quite frankly a, do I dare say, a can of worms. Uh, Republicans have expressed a concern of CPAs being overloaded with work and with work, this overall just being a bit complex. And a lot of people still not 100% understanding what that full picture is going to look like. Uh, One thing that's very unique about these two proposals, now that I'm bringing back the EITC into the conversation, is that both pieces of legislation, the Senate bills, were given substitutes so that they occur retroactively. So in the case of the EITC, if passed in the appropriate time window, uh, individuals that are now filing taxes this year could apply for a credit that will make up this new difference of a 30% EITC. Uh, As for the retirement proposal, also given a substitute that will make things able to get these investments uh, for the 2023 tax filing season. So, John, basically the Democratic majority is leading off their session with tax cuts. What do you make of that? They're wisely taking away all their opponents' key arguments uh, right out of the gate. Uh, uh, We heard it going in that these proposals, as Sam said, weren't going to go far enough. They weren't going to go fast enough. Well, lo and behold, they are now. Uh, and, and if you're Winnie Brinks or, uh, or Joe Tate, you can say, look how bipartisan we are. Uh, but tongue in cheek, they're also kind of giggling because they've taken away their opponent's uh, main argument, their main crutch. So, To that point, John, the Republicans were excited that because of a income tax rollback formula that was put into the gas tax increase in 2015, Michigan's income tax rate is likely going to go down from 4.25 to 4.05 and the republicans are coming out and saying hey not only are we responsible for this but we think that the democrats are going to try and eliminate this trigger and they're going to come in and say no no no, it's fiscally irresponsible to do this so we're going to eliminate the trigger but the democrats are saying wait a minute we're, we're not saying anything of the sort We're not sure that it's going to happen, but beyond that, we haven't even had discussions about this. So the Republicans are trying to place blame on something that the Democrats haven't even done yet. And in fact, because of the big budget surplus we have right now, Citizens Research Council, Andrew, is basically saying 
the money is there to cut taxes. So if you want to go for it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's taking the thunder away from the, the, the Republicans. They try to bring up a subject and like the like the rollback and the Democrats are saying, we didn't say anything about that. Why? Why are you trying to make hay out of this? So what issues do the Republicans bring out then to try and resonate with the public, to try and separate themselves from Democrats while also appealing to the middle? Well, I think I think their overall approach is going to be that these proposals are about picking winners and losers. Uh, we look at the EITC only around, I believe it's a projected 730,000 that are going to qualify for this. There are brackets and windows that you must be within to meet eligibility. Uh, on top of that, I mean, there are actually reports that show that one in five residents who do qualify for the EITC don't actually get it because of how complicated filing for this tax credit can occasionally be. Uh, when it comes to retirement, the reality is, despite the other items that were brought into this now mega proposal, public pension carriers are going to have the biggest benefit of this. Uh, so I think that's the approach that they're going to take right now is that why isn't a more widespread proposal? Republicans did have a proposed amendment for the retirement proposal that would actually add the 500 per family tax credit. Andrew, where do you think they go? Do you think they still try and fight the, the tax cut thing or do we go somewhere else? No, I, I do think that they end up going to some culture war issue or uh, possibly education. I mean, those are two big things that that they've been pounding on for quite some time. I mean, you know, with culture war issues, they they go into the abortion. I know that it hasn't really been a a a winning subject for them, but it doesn't mean that they they don't try or they don't go that route. Parental anyway. involvement in schools, maybe something of that nature. Absolutely. I've always kind of thought, John, that the Republicans would try the old tried and true method of a minority party and go for transparency. They could go for transparency and accountability. Uh, they've got some work to do there if they want to do it that way. Uh, I think if you're Minority Leader Hall and Nesbitt, you, you, the smartest thing they would do is go back to the grindstone and really look at public policy and, and not fall into the trap, into the easy uh, trope of just taking culture war issues that are handed down to them by the national media to start really looking at public policy and where can they start making a case? Where can they start making a difference? Where can they get a cohesive message together? Uh, as a party uh, that's not in the majority anymore. I mean, on the abortion issue, they can bring up the whole argument about uh, late-term abortions. Does Proposal 3 really do allow late-term abortions? And are there some kind of regulations that we can put into effect that would prevent an abortion after, I don't know, 20 weeks, 16 weeks? I'm not sure what the time frame would be. But is there something they can do about parental consent for an abortion? Is that something they can try and bring up? I don't know. I, I don't know if they've got a winning argument on that one or on guns. And guns is going to come up, not right now, but it will come up down the line. I think China, I think we're going to hear conversations about China a lot. Obviously, Senator Tice has already introduced a bill that would make a TikTok ban for state-owned devices. Uh, you know, I think uh, I think Democrats are in a position, especially when you think about the economic development side of the conversation, where they want to make Michigan a prime territory for battery manufacturing, EV production. Uh, some of these strongholds that China has been very successful in having a huge market for. Um, I think China's going to be a big conversation point that Republicans have an opportunity to utilize, especially when you saw that the Goshen Soar Fund investment didn't get approved because of concerns by how controversial it became in the 2022 election. Well, the Republicans have used China as an issue before. I don't know how successful it was, but they certainly are not beyond that. Andrew, you talked with Senator Jim Runstead today. I have a feeling they're going to bring up things like Child Protective Services. And is there enough oversight to make sure that that State Department is keeping vulnerable kids safe? Yeah. And uh, as John had talked about, transparency uh, was one of the big things that, that Jim Runstead talked about uh, when I was talking with him a little bit earlier. It, it was an issue they're pulling in the the emotional gravitas of children going through horrific circumstances in these uh, cases, such as the woman whose five-year-old and her had died in Pontiac with, you know, in the middle of a blizzard 
uh, because of hypothermia being just wrapped in a sheet or other horrific cases that had gone through CPS. John, the Republicans do got to be a little concerned here or got to be a little weary about bringing up transparency. It was the Republican Senate that slammed the brakes on any type of open records access to the legislature and subjecting the governor to the Freedom of Information Act. Yep, that's exactly right. And um, one of the things that I've always found fascinating about the legislature uh, as as the party control changes is uh, how oversight suddenly to some party or one party or the other becomes so important when they no longer have the control uh, that they used to have. Uh, and the sad thing is the legislature has an important role to, to play in oversight of state government. That It's just never done it very well. It's never done it consistently. They've never invested in the in the infrastructure within the legislature to do consistent and solid and important oversight work. It becomes something that's a political football. Uh, our guy's in control now. We don't really need to look anymore. Uh, so we don't. Well, and a prime example of that is the advise and consent committee in the senate when the republicans were in charge and granholm was in office all of a sudden advising consent popped up the second that rick snyder was sworn into office poof advising consent went away and then whitmer gets put in and boom there it is again and then all the democrats are in charge and now advising consent is no longer here again but that's exactly to your point uh we talked a little bit about guns uh kyle i want to ask you specifically about a book you read this weekend uh i don't have the title in front of me but i believe it has something with guns and chat fields and all sorts of good stuff surviving the chat fields god guns government and grooming by somebody named dave duncan davy duncan is his name and he was a former student at this uh private school up north the northern michigan christian academy that is run by the father of former speaker lee chatfield pastor rusty chatfield and this is a book that was flagged by uh, the author to our courts reporter, Lisa Roos Church. Uh, It's been out on Amazon for a couple weeks, but I I hadn't heard of it until this weekend. I did read it this weekend. And uh, this guy has some tales to tell in terms of his experience at this Christian Academy, and in particular, paddling. He was not a big fan of getting spanked for doing things he didn't feel like deserve paddling and he didn't like paddling anyway uh he told some uh funny stories about that about how he put uh, sofa foam in his pants because he knew he was going to get swatted uh but when him and his buddy put the sofa foam down his pants he it didn't hurt as bad uh but he used that as kind of a jumping off point to talk about lee chatfield and his issues that he's had and the allegations made by his uh, former sister-in-law and talking about the issues with campaign finance uh, issues. A lot of that, though, John, was rehash. Uh, He didn't have anything new to say about Lee Chatfield. The parts on that was a lot of pontificating, a lot of theory spinning. The stuff that was new and, and kind of interesting had to do with his relationship with somebody named Norm Olson. And I don't know if you remember this guy or not, but you got oh, yeah, to oh, yeah, dial the clock back to the Michigan militia era of 19, early 1990s. And uh, uh, yep. this guy was the Oklahoma f- bombers. Yep. yep. He was the guy who said that the Japanese were responsible for the Oklahoma city bombing, which obviously they were not. It was people who were of the same type of mindset as these Michigan militia people. We had the Nichols brothers who obviously were Michigan militia and they were involved with Timothy McVeigh and the whole bombing. And apparently this Norm Olson had some information in regards to the explosive that was used that blew up that building in Oklahoma City. The most interesting part of the book from my standpoint was that this Norm Olson and Rusty Chatfield and another guy came to this Davy Duncan's father's house and had a meeting at the very formation of the Michigan militia and, and that they felt like they had to do something because of the the Waco, Texas incident and how people who are anti-government were getting attacked on and picked on by the government and that uh, the government was going to turn against them, so they needed to form a citizen's militia to push back. And from his recollection, this Davy Duncan's recollection, Rusty Chatfield was supportive, but he didn't want his name attached to it. He was just going to be an advisor and just told, her, told Norm Olson to go for it. 
So that that part of it was was pretty interesting. And then this Norm Olson also apparently was a teacher at the school at one point in time. I don't know. Really? Yeah, it was just a very very odd bunch of coincidences. So I got to give it to Davy Duncan though. He's got a he's got a hell of a title there though, isn't he? Yeah, I mean he does. I mean he's been involved in law enforcement before. He's he's got a background in investigative work. It's just that this particular trope that he's writing feels very politically motivated, particularly at the end. Uh, he obviously didn't like his experience at the Chatfield Church School. Uh, that really comes out, and okay. uh, a lot of a lot of presumptions are being made, a lot of hypotheses, a lot of his opinion, and some things stated as fact that just aren't really fact. His telling of the mm-hmm. protest of the the Liberty or freedom protests that we had where the folks brought the guns up into the Senate gallery, a lot of misstatements in that, a lot of facts not correct in that. And that's just because I had personal experience in there because I actually was at that protest and I got to witness what happened. And his version of it tells me he was not there and does not know what he's talking about. So that kind of tainted me to a lot of the other stuff that he kind of launched off on. Uh, he quoted a lot of uh, some old news reports, but uh, by and large, I think that um, getting out a particular message and piling on the chat fields was more important than maybe mm-hmm. um, setting forth a bunch of facts. It's really interesting that you, you know, that he was uh, connected to the whole Michigan militia, Ruby Ridge, Waco, Texas thing that has historically given rise to the real conservative conspiratorial mindset that we're seeing today play out, especially with like America first candidates during the midterms and, you know, everything that was that's going on with in the Republican party right now with the, with the civil war. Well, you're exactly right, Andrew. And he ties that into the uh, riots at the Capitol and Donald Trump, not acknowledging the results of the 2020 election. He ties all that in and brings up Rusty Chatfield and saying that he was involved and in his interviews that he did on the trucker Randy radio show up North is just further proof that he is an insurrectionist at heart. And he, he might've even had a planning role in the uh, January 6th riots at the u.s capitol that was thrown out there as a possibility so again just a a lot of presumptions i'm not saying he's wrong i mean it's possible he's right but not really much to back it up so you wouldn't recommend the book uh uh, let's just say i don't think it's going to be used as a basis for a lot of investigative reports let's just put it that way I feel like the only contribution I can offer to this point in the conversation is with all the headlines that occurred last year and in 2021, I highly doubt that's going to be the only book published. So stay tuned and get your reading list. I know that Governor Whitmer, she's going to write a book soon, not until after she's done with her term. I think you're probably right, Samantha. All right, with that, let's uh, go on to somebody who knows quite a bit about books, and that is our state superintendent, Michael Rice. Joining us now on the podcast is the state superintendent of public instruction here in the state of Michigan, Dr. Michael Rice. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, sir. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. The governor talked a lot during her State of the State address about four-year-old preschool. I thought we already had four-year-old preschool. What is she proposing that's different than what we already have? Sure. So uh, under current state statute, uh, GSRP preschool, Great Start Readiness Program preschool, it's our award-winning state-funded preschool program. Uh, is available to children at 250% of the federal poverty limit or below. And uh, so it has the potential to serve uh, up to 60,000 children in the state, uh, but not uh, 105, 106, 108,000 children a year. So essentially, we're expanding the universe of four-year-olds who would be eligible for free preschool why is that important? Why is that a, a supreme public policy interest? 
Well, this is important for a variety of reasons. One, preschool, uh, an additional year in that zero to five-year-old timeframe is arguably the most impactful educational intervention of anything in the research. An extra year onto what is typically a 13-year um, education, K-12. So you get another one-thirteenth. You get basically another seven and a half percent of your education. And it's on the front end, not the back end, when kids are learning exponentially. So that's one reason. The second reason is that that education is the gift that keeps on giving. It not only improves all educational outcomes, uh, literacy, numeracy, likely graduation rates, likely college attendance, likely college graduation, but also life outcomes as well. Increased life earnings associated with one year of high quality preschool. Uh, how decrease- is that though? I mean, Dr. Rice, why? I mean, just because they're in like a daycare-like setting, how does that set them up for success later in life? Not Not daycare. Daycare is separate and distinct from GSRP preschool. GSRP preschool is a, is a, is a, is, um, is much more rigorous, and a high quality preschool program. If you if you read James Heckman uh, from the University of Chicago, Tim Bardick out of the Upjohn Institute, they'll indicate that um, there are effects on lifetime earnings. Why? Because you're starting an educational career off better, which means that you're more likely to learn to read. You're more likely to do well with numbers. You're more likely to graduate from high school. And if you graduate from high school, more likely to go on to college. And if going on to college, more likely to graduate from college. And your earnings are more likely to inflate as a result of the higher education. And this is not simply my opinion, although it is my opinion, it's also the result of 50 plus years of research dating back to the Perry Preschool Project in Ypsilanti um, in the mid 60s. And that that uh, that project continues to this day. What I mean by that is, is they continue that that researchers continue to track people who are in preschool in that um, uh, preschool program in the mid 60s. And they continue to track those those people now into their uh, late 50s and their 60s. Are you bringing up the teaching of English and teacher, teaching of reading one year earlier? What does what a day in, in that kind of program look like for, for the kid? Sure. Young people who are in a GSRP preschool are more likely to um, learn to socialize better with children. And so when they move into kindergarten, they already understand the rhythm of school. They know they know how to interact with young people. They know how to have meals together because there are group meals in GSRP, you know, group lunches in GSRP where kids are sitting down with staff and 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 eating. They know how to play well in the metaphorical uh, sandbox, not so much the literal sandbox, but the metaphorical sandbox, if you will, more likely to know their numbers. Um, their early numbers, more likely to know their letters, both uppercase and lowercase, shapes, colors. And so, you know, it, what, what's foreign to a number of those of us who are a little bit older is the notion of being prepared for kindergarten. It seems oxymoronic that kindergarten, we think, is the beginning. And so the notion of being prepared for kindergarten seems odd. You, you don't, you wouldn't talk about a child being prepared for birth and so being prepared for kindergarten seems similarly oxymoronic, but it's not oxymoronic, in fact, at all. In fact, with the ramped up kindergarten, with the with the uh, greater expectations associated with kindergarten, a strong year of preschool is necessary to meet, if you will, what we'd like to have as the prerequisites for kindergarten. And they're not they're not firm prerequisites, but to the extent that children know numbers to 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 10 at the barest minimum, uh, their letters, um, their shapes, their colors. And I'm not talking about fuchsia, magenta, uh, teal, but your your basic colors, your basic shapes, um, your your numbers, the the relationship of uh, letters and sounds 
letter sounds and meaning, um, you know, the beginning of those relationships, you are well on your way to having a successful kindergarten experience and by extension, first, second, and third grade experience. We, we, are, we are really trying very, very hard to do better in early literacy. And this is arguably the best effort to do better in early literacy, the expansion of GSRP preschool. Andrew? What is the oversight from the Department of Ed uh, for these programs? Like what what is it that that you do to make sure that these programs are doing that? Well, the department is responsible for the model. The department is responsible for um, the the sharing of um, high quality curricula um, with providers. Um, it's responsible for the standards associated with the early childhood teachers working with ed prep institutions um, across the state, the 30 ed prep institutions across the state on those standards, on the development of teachers associated um, with these um, programs. The ISDs are responsible for the distribution of slots to local school districts, number one, to community-based organizations, number two, and we collectively are responsible for addressing the teacher shortage, a teacher shortage, I might add, that we didn't, uh, that we're not responsible for, but that we're responsible for helping to mitigate. Speaking about the teacher shortage, how are we going to get enough tutors to help these students who are still struggling post-pandemic catch up? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that there are untapped uh, pools of individuals in our communities across the state that have an interest in participating uh, with kids, have an interest in serving kids, particularly as we come out of a pandemic. So I think, for example, of fraternities and sororities, um, you have um, pretty active community outreach uh, among a number of the fraternities and sororities. And I'm talking not about 18 and 19 year olds, 20 year olds, the kids in college, but I'm talking about the, the alums of fraternities and sororities. I also think faith-based faith institutions are really important as well, churches, synagogues, temples, mosques, um, a lot of these have a um, espoused interest in serving. You may be familiar with the expression, faith without work is dead, or faith without works is dead, that a number of people define their ministry and define their church um, uh, work and their, and their faith as part of uh, working with and particularly working with those who have less and need more children and um, and senior citizens who, who have particular needs. So I think those are two um, potential big pools of uh, tutors and not simply tutors, but but mentors and um, and just caring adults that we want back in our schools. They they in some cases were in our schools pre pandemic in other cases were never in our schools as substantially as they uh, should have been in particular communities. I know in my old district, we had several hundred mentors, um, many of whom came from our church community as part of our outreach to to, to pastors and, and other faith-based leaders. Uh, Superintendent, last year, the governor proposed $280 million for tutoring. She only got about a quarter of that. But if she were to put that forward again this year, are you suggesting that these faith-based leaders and folks in fraternities and sororities, senior citizens, would receive some compensation then for tutoring high school and middle school and elementary school students? So I think it really depends upon the, the bumpers uh, around which the legislature um, structures this program. You know, the department's guidance is a function of statute. Um, we are precluded by law from operating outside of statute. And so if um, if if my belief is that we will be given the opportunity to uh, solicit a request for proposals from local school districts, um, local school districts, proposing 
uh, a certain amount of funding for the tutoring, um, number one, to work with particular types of tutors in the community, number two, and then we would go ahead and in the department and grant those dollars. Kyle, you pointed out that last year, the governor asked for $280 million. The legislature granted her $52 million. And there weren't a whole lot of parameters put around those. But the answer, the answer to your question is, yes, you could imagine that a faith-based institution working in a non-sectarian fashion to provide uh, tutoring services to children um, could receive some uh, some funding in that regard. You're going to be speaking with the uh, House and Senate Education Committees, and one of the first items on the agenda is the third grade reading law. Uh, how do you think that's going? Well, I think the Look, the interventions that are noted in the law, I think, are um, are reasonable interventions. Um, but you have to fund the interventions. Number one, they're um, interventions or or ways of improving literacy. Number two, that aren't mentioned in the law. We've persistently underfunded uh, public education in the state for a number of years, and we're just catching up. Number three, number four. We have a teacher shortage. Um, unmentioned is the concern around retentions, which I think is a is really a, a not a well thought through initiative. It's not supported as a rule by the um, by the literature. It shouldn't be the default. It shouldn't be the go to to improve literacy. To improve literacy, particularly in high poverty communities, you want low class sizes in your early elementary classes. I'm not talking about upper L, middle school or high school. It's not my point in this conversation. I'm talking specifically about pre-K, K-1, 2, and 3. Statutorily, the GSRP classes are capped. K-1, 2, 3 are not capped in any way, shape, or form. And so you can go into a high poverty school and see a teacher um, in some cases, teaching 28 or 29 children in first grade. I defy you to um, make 29 first graders um, in a high poverty community into strong uh, readers. So what is the size of class then that would increase it? And what would it take as far as funding to do that? So it used to for for years we had a um, a small class size grant in the state. It was for approximately two dozen uh, local school districts, high poverty, low achieving. I would suggest eighteen to twenty, that it be capped at twenty, um, and ideally more more at eighteen. You're talking uh, about children that have not had a lot of uh, language development in their early years. Um, we've got to get in there early and do something substantial with them. And 29 to one is not is not going to make it, not for the, not for the teacher and certainly not for the students. So the literature suggests lower class sizes, higher achievement as a, uh, as a result, Andy. What, what are the top three public policy issues you'd have them address if you, if you were to advise the, the two new leaders, the Speaker of the House and the Majority Leader? Well, my, my my hope is I'm going to get to lay that out on Thursday um, in a legislative committee. But I shared it with the state board on um, on January 10th. It's not it's not so much three. It's, it's eight. We have a top 10 strategic education plan. It has eight uh, goal areas. Um, there are two resource upstream goals, the addressing of the teacher shortage and adequate and equitable school funding. There are two. Uh, developmental upstream goals, the expansion of Great Start Readiness Program, the improvement of early literacy. And then we have another goal, which is somewhat um, developmentally upstream as well. It's the improvement of health, safety, and wellness, particularly leaning into mental health in, in the state. And those developmental upstream goals affect everything else developmentally downstream the resource goals affect everything else resource downstream. And by resource downstream, 
and developmentally downstream, I mean goals four, five, and six. Goal four, the expansion of secondary school learning opportunities, the expansion of career and technical education programming, AP, IB, early middle college, dual enrollment, and um, special education transition services, the, the improvement of graduation rates, the improvement of post-secondary credential rates. So, so my advisement of legislative leaders and by extension, the governor is all around our top 10 strategic education plan passed by the State Board of Education in August of 2020. And I can go granularly into each of those eight goals if you'd like. But that's that's essentially what we've what we've advised. Moreover, we've advised um, very clearly on the teacher shortage, which is arguably the most um, uh, the element most adversely affecting our public schools at this time. You know, the paradox is for a number of years we were underfunded, and um, one could argue that we still have. A financial resource issue. I would argue that. But at this moment, it's the human resource issue that is the most extraordinary of the two. Um, it's not to say that financial resources aren't an issue, but you can only increase your financial resources so much at any given time. Um, at some point, the uh, human resources have to come together with the financial and the challenge for our local school districts is that in a number of cases, they have the money, but they don't have the requisite human resources to buy at the current time. I'll give you one example of that. Five years ago, we had precisely nothing in the uh, State School Aid Act for children's mental health, a big goose egg. This year, we have uh, more than a third of a billion dollars for children's mental health. In fiscal year 22, we were granted $240 million for um, a very innovative um, section of statute to increase the number of helping professionals, guidance counselors, nurses, school social workers, school psychologists. And local school districts applied for and were granted funding to hire 508 of these helping professionals. Again, guidance counselors, nurses, school social workers, school psychs. Had there been the requisite number of helping professionals on the market, one could have imagined, I would imagine, that they would have asked for three times that number. Our, gui our, our, our student guidance counselor ratio is one of the worst in the country. Our student nurse ratio, one of the worst in the country, and, and, and. So, so the paradox for this moment not the case historically, for, but for this moment in time, is that we have uh, financial resources with the relative inability to purchase the human resources that we need. Now, we're addressing this in a whole variety of different ways, but it takes time, as you know, to grow a high school graduate. It takes time to grow a, uh, a teacher as well. Dr. Rice, now, what, what is the... What should parents' involvement in schools look like? Uh, ideally, parents uh, should be actively involved in their children's school. They should be reading to their children on a daily basis. They should be, um, to the extent that they are able, uh, they should be engaged in um, what their children learn in school, what their children's homework is, taking their children to the library, getting their children library cards, um, working with uh, the school to problem solve when children have um, uh, challenges. They should be involved in their children's um, athletic events, their arts events, a whole host of other things. Where, do, where have things gone off the rails on this front, though? Um, I think that um, it's um, a more complicated world, Kyle, than, than perhaps when, uh, when we were coming up. And um, I think that um, um, there are more tugs on the, the family. Um, there are uh, parents that um, don't have, um, there are many parents that are engaged with their, their children's education, but there are, many ch there are many parents who aren't engaged with their children 
let alone their children's education. And if they're not involved in their children's lives, um, it's hard for them to be involved in their children's education. So many of our parents work very, very hard to connect with schools and to be supportive of their children, uh, but many, um, but many not so much. Anything that you're doing right now isn't going to be seen in education. The results aren't going to be seen for for uh, several years, at least. And how how do you explain that lag? And uh, I know uh, the the underfunding is still going to affect it, even though there is more money going into it. How do you explain that lag to the the uh, legislature who is looking for results now? Well, I think, look, we can't build a better past. We can't go back and correct the underfunding from 1995 to 2015. We can only build a better future. So the question becomes, how do we go about doing it? With respect to GSRP, for example, um, is it in part about funding? It is, but it's also in part uh, about addressing the school year. Kyle, I mentioned this to you the other night, that we have a GSRP school year, which for the most part, is 30 weeks a year. Um, it needs to be 36 to 38 weeks a year. We have a GSRP instructional week, which is four days a week. It needs to be five days a week. Childcare is five days a week. Developmental kindergarten is five days a week. We're competing against each in GSRP in a fashion. It needs to be five days a week. So what I would say to uh, not simply the legislature, but to anybody who asks, um, what can we do now to improve outcomes now and, and uh, to get more children in preschool um, for the absolute maximum amount of time will help out everything else down downstream. So preschool improves kindergarten, kindergarten improves first grade, first grade improves second and third and so on and so forth. And we piece it together Um uh, little by little. The other thing that I would say is, is that with respect to the teacher shortage, we're showing increases right now in the people, uh, the number of people in teacher prep institutions. We've increased those four years in a row, and I anticipate that those will numbers will continue to grow over a period of years. But remember, they were at 23,000 young people in teacher prep institutions preparing to be teachers in 2011, when the legislature cut $470 per kid, when you had layoffs across the state, when there was a required health insurance uh, contribution, a changing of the pension system, and the number of people in teacher prep institutions plummeted from 23,000 to 9,500 five years later. We've built that back up to 13,000 young people in teacher prep institutions. But the reality is, is that we're we're digging out from a uh, from a circumstance that that was relatively predictable. It was it was an underfunding on the part of the legislature, um, without a thought as to what would happen to the um, to the marketplace for for teachers. And we went from a buyer's market for teachers to a seller's market for teachers in the state in just a few years. State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Michael Rice, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Last week, Samantha Schreiber was able to speak with some Ukrainian students. Samantha, tell us about this. Yeah, so on Thursday, I did a joint interview with Vlad Kozar, an 11th grader who fled from the Ukraine in April 2022 to live with his grandparents in Metro Detroit, and his new school principal, Dr. Josip Otorosian of the AGBU Alex and Marie Manugian Charter School in Southfield. The Manugian School has accepted numerous young Ukrainian refugees since the Russian invasion of the country. Many of these students arrived unable to speak much English, and while while they all share the traumatic experience of having to quickly leave their home due to the Russian invasion. They arrived as strangers now bonded by their journey to the United States. Uh, so this is my joint uh, interview with Vlad and Dr. Tarosian uh, that we did in Heritage Hall in the Michigan Capitol on Thursday. So Dr. Tarosian, can you just kind of tell me what you all are doing here today and what has the last year been like for you? 
Um, well, we received an invitation to come and visit the capital. This is uh, uh, School Choice Week, uh, organized by MAPSA, Michigan Association of Public School Academies. And um, we were able to uh, bring uh, close to 50 uh, Ukrainian refugee students um, to the state capital. Uh, it's a good day for them to see Michigan democracy at work, to see the building, um, and to be out of school for a day. <laughs> so uh, I must admit that it's been a difficult year because um, we are a small school. The Manugian School is a charter school in uh, Southfield. And um, last year, uh, since the war began in Ukraine, we've been inundated by uh, refugee students knocking on our door wanting a safe haven, good quality of education, um, a place that they can feel safe and welcomed. Um, it, was, it was difficult, I must admit, of course, uh, our doors were wide open uh, to the Ukrainian refugee students, but the challenges were many. Um, of course, uh, the students were uh, facing incredible challenges of being uprooted, uh, being in a foreign country. Um, the language barrier was incredibly difficult, uh, both to them and to our faculty, of course. Um, we had to make uh, uh, very significant changes. We added three ESL faculty members. Uh, who uh, luckily are able to communicate in Ukrainian um, and then began teaching them uh, English. So uh, the adaptation period, of course, continues. Uh, and as uh, you'll see from uh, uh, Vlad uh, in a few minutes, uh, I think it's been, the outcome has been better. Uh, than we expected uh, because of the nurturing environment um, that we provided to these children. Yeah, so our small school of uh, uh, 400 and uh, at the time 350 is now 450 and the difference is, is just you know the, the new uh, Ukrainian students um, that came to us. Oh, definitely. So, Vlad, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and how you ended up at the Manugian School? So, my my grandma was speaking with uh, someone in the church, you know, and uh, someone told her that here's a great school in the Southfield. You can go there. They help a lot for Ukrainian students now. So, yeah. Then, on the next day, we went with her to the Manugian school and I, I enrolled successfully. Then I just came to school and uh, yeah, it was a really great environment. It was very friendly, very supportive. It helped me a lot. Um, at the very beginning of my way in the school, like, you know, all teachers were, how to say, welcoming. Yeah, welcoming. <laughs> They all wanted to help me at, and help everyone in the school, like every Ukrainian students, especially. And you know, just a really great school with a lot of great opportunities. So yeah. When did you initially leave the Ukraine for Michigan? When I did come, like yeah. when did I arrive? Eight months ago. Something like that, yeah. Now, did you have family here or anything <coughs> like that, or? Yeah, uh, my grandparents live here for 25 years, I guess. So I have a place where I stay at, you know. And yeah, it's a little bit more comfortable and easier for us to stay here in USA with our grandparents. But at the same time, it's not very like it's not very easy here. Yeah, definitely. Vlad did not speak a word of English uh, a year ago. Yeah, I did not. <laughs> so this is tremendous improvement. Thank you. Thank you, Vlad. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And you've been speaking a lot today, haven't you? Yeah, I speak <laughs> a lot. Probably five interviews, six, I don't know. And a speech, yeah. 
What makes you want to like talk a lot to like the media and do interviews? Did I like it? Yeah. Do you like yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. This like interesting experience. Mm-hmm. I like it so far. Yeah. So who all did you come here with to stay with your grandparents? With who is my mom and little brother, and my my father stayed in Ukraine because he's he has a military duty, so he can leave. Mm-hmm. Are you able to talk to your father at all? Yeah, I can use the social media program, something like that. I can talk with him on the phone. Yeah, so it's how not a big deal, but you know, always is better to see him alive, like. Social media is not that way which I want to speak with him. Yeah. Vlad's mom has been back to uh, yeah, meet to with the father. Yeah. And she, is she back now? Yeah, she's back now and she will, she will live one time. Like, you know, she just visited me, not, yes. not staying here yes. permanently. Yes. Now, how does travel back to the Ukraine, what does it look like right now? Uh, again, I can't speak of that. I, I know it's difficult depending on... Uh, what section of Ukraine where you're yeah. heading to, but uh, some people go to Poland and then take the bus to go wherever they want to go. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't know the details as to what internal travel looks like. You know, like everyone else, we're just uh, to see what's on TV and the difficult times that they're uh, coping with. What do you think were the hardest challenges when you first got to Michigan? Mm, probably the language, yeah. The first one is the language. Language. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to move between some places because the distance between something is too far, you know. You need, you need to use car and that's the only way to get somewhere. Yeah. Like of because public in transport. Ukraine, yeah, mm-hmm. for example, in Ukraine, I can walk around all all my city and that's without any problem. But here is, it couldn't be because you just need a car and you don't have any right? Was it Ternopil or yeah, Ternopil, yeah, Ternopil, Ternopil. Yeah, large community. We have many students from Ternopil. Mm-hmm. And again, being a small town, uh, Vlad is talking about the ease of transport. Uh, moving uh, within the city in Ternopil versus uh, versus Detroit. <laughs> I know. I hate the driving here. It's like an hour and a half. I'm like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, are you able to like um like get your driver's license, or is that something that you're working towards? Yeah, I can get my. I have a first first permission. That's exciting. So awesome. <laughs> No, but even then, I feel like drivers in Michigan were kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, you know, were there any students who you go to class with now who you knew back in Ukraine? No, no one, like, no, nobody. Uh, uh, if any, very, very few students knew each other back yeah. home. They because all developed so. their friendships here. Uh, Ukraine has a population of 40 plus mm-hmm. million and it's a huge country. I think it's the second largest country in Europe after France. Um, so no, they did not know each other or one another, but uh, here they forged incredible friendships uh, in our school. Mm-hmm. So. What was it like to go to school as strangers, but you all are going through the same experience? Like, did I like the... Like, the same situation, essentially, to all be from Ukraine with the war going on. I don't know, like, it was a little bit difficult. It's not easy way, you know, Mm -hmm. so... It's the same challenges that uh, Vlad faces is faced by all his classmates, all the newcomers. Again, they've been uprooted, uh, they feel strange, uh, uh, they come from families that have been torn apart, um, so it's the challenge is not, this is the common challenge, plus the, the language barrier that exists. Um, uh, it's very difficult to overcome, but uh, as you saw, Vlad, within eight months, was able to give a speech today, which, yeah, you know, he did awesome. an incredible work, and uh, it's, uh, I don't think I would, I would be as competent in any other language uh, in, in a matter of eight months, mm-hmm. so Vlad has done a beautiful job. No, that's really awesome.
So, you know, you miss your home the most, but yeah. what do you like about, what do you like most about Michigan? Most about Michigan, like, here is a lot of opportunities to hang out with friends. Here is a lot of muse museums, like that old places which you, in which you can meet with your friends, something like that. Yes, it's most interesting part. And uh, Detroit, in uh, like the center of Detroit, is a very beautiful place. You know. Yeah. No, I love Detroit. It's beautiful, for yeah, sure. Yeah, Detroit is really yeah. a great place. A lot of music, a lot of, like, good food. Yes, sea <laughs> resorts, something like that. A lot of stuff. No, no, and you all are going to be heading back to school soon, it seems like. Uh, but obviously you came here today. What is something that you really want people to know when you talk about your experience? The help each other is really important in that in this situation, you know, because without helping us, we will we will broke, we will break, you know. Mm -hmm. So yes, yeah, support is the most important thing. Is, is there something that you kind of came here to to you know advocate for to ask the state for? I I'm I'm so delighted that the Michigan Department of Education has been so helpful, welcoming, understanding of our dilemma, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the assistance that they provided. Uh, uh, we are so impressed by what the MDE has done. The experts in ESL instruction have been at our school so many times giving help to our students and to our faculty uh, to make sure that uh, we overcome this initial challenge as quickly and as easily as possible. Uh, same thing with uh, MAPSA, various organizations, help has been pouring. Uh, uh, Vlad has been on TV a few times, uh, you know, Channel yeah. 7 interviews, WJR, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, the world is out, the word is out and uh, I think society is appreciative of uh, uh, what the Manugian School has done and continues to do. Um, so, again, we're grateful to all the assistance that we've received. Appreciate it. Do you like doing interviews or? <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. So, like at the first time, as the first interview was really hard, but now I, it's a little bit easier. No, it's easy. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I speak a lot, so now I know how to do that. So. See, I'm so used to asking questions. If someone were to ask me something, I'd be like. Um. <laughs> no, of course. I well. think I think the fact that he's lived it, you know, he speaks from the heart. He appreciates what he sees. I think that makes his interviews easier. So, what's like kind of your education journey, though? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, I, um, I'm a chemical engineer by trade. I worked in industry for 22 years, and then uh, I transitioned to education. Long story short, uh, here I am uh, as a high school uh, principal at the Manigan. I have my doctorate from Central Michigan University. I went to CMU and as well. Are you? <laughs> yes, wow. I'm a chef, yes. Fantastic, fantastic. So, um, yeah, half of my career has been in engineering and the other half in education. I don't know which one I love more. Are you also from the Ukraine or where are you No, from? I'm Armenian by, uh, Armenian by uh, uh, national origin. And, uh, well, there's a lot of connections between uh, Armenians and Ukrainians. I think similar values, similar connections, similar aspirations. Uh, we've all experienced war, uh, genocide in both nations, the Ukrainian Holodomor and the Armenian genocide, turn of the century. So I think we know very well, we understand very well, we've felt it, and uh, we know what these kids are going through. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio in Okemos. Special thanks to AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. For the boss, John Rurink, Samantha Schreiber, and Andrew Miniger, I'm Kyle Malin. Till next week, take care. Of our elaborate 
safety or surprise the end.